Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today I'm sharing a special live conversation that I had with my friend Fanny Singer. If you're familiar with Fanny's work, you also know that her mother is Alice Waters, a personal hero of mine and the chef behind legendary Chez Panisse. Fanny's book is called Always Home, which she released during the pandemic. It's a cookbook, but it's also a beautiful and exquisite peek into her world, one that has always been filled with food. Fanny and I share a few parallels, which we talk about in this conversation. We both grew up with notable mothers whose paths we mostly followed. We were both expats in the UK, and we have both written cookbooks devoted to our parents. Mine was for my father. I love getting to chat with Fanny about beauty and giving ourselves permission to revel in it, whether it's the scent of an open fire or a lovingly packed lunchbox. So let's get to my lovely conversation with Fanny Singer. Hi, Fanny. Hi. I'm so happy that I'm getting to spend a little time with you. So I think we actually met because of Always Home in a roundabout way. We are recent friends, and I was so moved by the book when I got it during the pandemic and posted about it, and then our friendship ensued, and we've been able to spend some good quality time together since then. And this book, first of all, not only is it so beautiful and lyrical, but it's really quite iconoclastic because it, it's a real cookbook, but it sort of has the language, the beauty and poetry of a novel. And, you know, the way that you write is so exquisite and just absolutely conjures so viscerally the feelings of being around food and being in a kitchen. 
And as you point out at the beginning of the book, you know, that writing a, a memoir in your mid thirties might seem a little bit strange or early in your life's trajectory to undertake a project like that. So I just wonder, like, what was the impetus for this book? How did it come to you? And how did you decide that you wanted to interweave thoughts about your life with recipes? Starting very early on when I was 18, I started to get sort of inquiries by publishers and editors about writing a book. I mean, I, there was always this kind Because of, of the kids' books that your mother had written about you? I think less because of the kids' books is just the fact of my of who my mother was and the sort of curiosity about what the experience could possibly be the authentic experience you know coming from her child her one and only child you know discounting of course what I describe in, in the book is her various other children which are these you know the edible schoolyard project and shape niece but as her only flesh and blood child you know there was this curiosity about what my experience was you know growing up in what was as the book definitely details, a pretty rarefied household. And I wasn't, I wasn't at all ready to write any kind of book. I mean, not a recipe book and certainly not a memoir when I was in my later teens. And, and it took a long time, I think, actually leaving for England and being far, far away from Berkeley. I mean, I left Berkeley when I was 18 and I was in England for 11 years after college. And that distance, I think, was really critical to get perspective on where I had come from and what I was looking to distance myself from, which was not at all from the immense love and connection that I had to my mom, but from the power of her influence. You know, what would it feel like to be in a place where there was not name brand recognition with her name, or at least not as much, you know, and to do something that was not tethered in an intellectual or cultural way to her work in an explicit way anyway, you know, to study our history and to do something that really felt like it was outside of the remit of her sort of focus and specialty. And at the end of my time in England, I think, you know, I felt like if I was going to be able to write anything ever, I had to first write about this relationship and, and in a way, kind of like in a loving way, really exercise it from, from my experience so that I could kind of like productively move on and move into the next thing and move into the thing that was really about like who I am now, which is also why I think I felt like I needed to look at it from this historical perspective and really talk about my childhood and give details of what it was like in this. And which, which is like very, very loving and very funny often because our, our house was, you know, like my mom's there's so many idiosyncrasies that lead to like incredibly comic, you know, yarns that <laughs> are thread, threaded through this book. But but it, it felt like the right time, I guess. And in a way also like food was indivisible from, from the stories, you know, that and that's kind of how I feel in life still, you know, that they're part and parcel. And you can't kind of have a story without having food be in a way at its center. So the recipes were a way to like continue the story and hopefully kind of encourage people like very directly into the recipe, which is why the recipes are also written in this kind of really narrative way. Yeah, which I which I love. It really like that blending of two art forms because you're reading these beautiful words and then you're sort of imagining the, the very tactile act of cooking and, and smelling. And I can't think of a lot of books that, that have done that. It's really so beautifully done. Do, was it, sort of onerous having a mother of that stature growing up? I mean, especially in Berkeley where she was like so revered and, and well-known. Asking for a friend. Asking for a friend. 
Well, it sort of strikes me, you know, we have these certain similarities, right? It's like, I grew up with a very notable mother and I wanted to do the same thing that she did. And then, you know, I was an expat in the UK for 11 years. And then I wrote a cookbook in homage to my father called My Father's Daughter. We learned how to cook together. So very different thing. But, you know, we do have these parallels and it's just, it's funny. And then of course, now I'm a mother of a daughter. And I mean, of course there are great things about being uh, in the public eye, but there are also, you know, certain difficult things. So I just wondered what your experience of that was, was like. I think, I mean, I, you know, it's what, it's certainly, it was a defining part of my relationship actually to myself in a way, you know, trying to fit in that. And I alluded to that in the last response, you know, having to really go somewhere far and beyond the reach of her name and celebrity, which is far less significant than yours. So I can imagine it being a harder, you know, a harder thing as, as a kid of someone who's, who's really, whose face is out there a lot more. Like I was lucky in a weird way that my mom's celebrity was pretty circumscribed when I was growing up. And she was never someone who was that comfortable being on TV. I mean, honestly, her masterclass is probably the most viewed thing that she's ever done, you know, in that format. And she did that in her seventies, you know, so that's, up until that point, there was, she was very rarely sort of out in that sphere and in that realm. And so there was this very loyal fan base, but they were kind of really into what she did for her work. And it was this adoring her for her altruism, especially through the Edible Schoolyard Project, and also her just, you know, unyielding commitment to a set of ethics around ingredient sourcing and procurement and supporting farmers and now what we are what we call regenerative agriculture and not just organic not just sustainable but this restorative method of farming you know these things that are tenants of her of her work and her obsession it's been nice to have a mom who was mostly famous for for her work for her deeds you know and and i and that actually gave me a lot of fuel for my own sort of my my own work and what, how much I felt I needed to commit myself and my convictions to it. You know, it was a good model, even though, of course, like in some places, especially with Japan, where my mom is like recognized more than anywhere else on the street, it was, it was very surreal. You know, we like a flock of Japanese people following us as soon as we exited our the hotel the first time we were in Tokyo together. And I didn't, like, neither of us really understood what it was even about. And it's because my mom did this one Japanese, like, TV show that was only in, in Japan and on some, like, Japanese version of Netflix. And it was apparently one of the most popular shows, like, ever on streamed there. Wow. And we didn't even know. And so people were really recognizing her. And that might have been, like, the most kind of intense experience of that. Otherwise, it was kind of manageable. It was more about my own, our own, like, mother-daughter sort of grappling with you know, what it is to be the sole child of someone who's, you know, recognized certainly for being on a mission, you know? Yeah. And there's such a purity in what she does. So I imagine like that fan base is really, you know, the alignment and the values is so strong, but you're not going to have a lot of people sort of projecting a lot of nonsense onto her, like of their own unresolved stuff, right? It's not like she's like sort of going to be in the Daily Mail all the time or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. But but nevertheless, you know, I think it is it is something, right, to, to grow up, I don't want to say in the shadow of, but underneath the umbrella of a woman who is, you know, so incredibly well-respected and known and revered I mean, I had a little bit of that with my mother too, just 
I remember, you know, going to see plays with her and people would just sort of fawn all over her in the lobby of the Broadway theaters, you know, and I would just be like, wow, this is, this is so great. So who am I then? What does this mean? And, and what does this mean for where I'm going in my life? So I can imagine, you know, there's a, a little bit of that, even, even though, you know, she wasn't in the Daily Mail all the time. But there, you know, I think what's been interesting too, and especially in my later thirties, as I've like really done some things now, I'm not as young and I don't feel the stress so much about like trying to carve out, you know, respect for myself and my field. It's like, you know, I, I do a lot of different things. I run a design brand, you know, I run permanent collection and I also write art critical art reviews and I, you know, have this kind of career in food and I'm increasingly interested in the sort of activism side of what my mother is doing and the work that she does in the public school system and this really intense campaign that she's undertaking, trying to get the whole of the UC system to buy regeneratively raised livestock and produce and everything so that there can be a huge conversion of how agriculture is practiced in California, which is obviously very broad, intense goal. And there is, you know, this UC Davis Institute that's being founded in her name to specifically sort of spearhead these things. I think I, I always felt like I needed to keep a lot of the stuff at a distance or like these worlds didn't interweave and didn't have bear any relationship to one another. And like, how could art history have anything to do with, you know, the edible schoolyard or even cooking? And how would someone respect my perspective writing about art if I'm like also on Instagram posting plates of food? And, you know, these, these sort of, I think, insecurities that you have, especially when you're younger, and when you're, maybe when you're a bit older, you're just a little bit more seasoned, you're just like, it doesn't matter. It's like, who, you know, what is the gestalt of it? It's really like this world I've created, which does have all these pieces and they actually do relate to one another. And especially discovering that the art world has so much more to do with my mother's work. And I, I kind of get at that in the book, talking about just how much beauty is at the core of, what, of all of her considerations. You know, it's like, if you go into the back of Chez Panisse, it does not look like the back of Chez It's not stainless steel and trash bags. It's like everywhere is covered in copper, you know, metal, and there are flower arrangements in places that only the staff see them. And there's always been this total regard for how an aesthetics or how an environment affect how people feel and how they want to work. And the idea of sort of falsely creating these binaries in my own life was something like I could kind of break down and just discard actually in the last few years. So it's been this kind of like very liberating thing to be like, all these things can exist at the same time. And it's also given me kind of my own permission to be really engaged with my mom's work in a way that, you know, I think I felt like a real rejection of when I was younger. Right. Makes sense. I mean, I think that, you know, when you're looking at how beauty can show up in the center of our lives, like it can take all of those forms. So you're absolutely right that we don't need to be binary about food or art or textiles or paintings or whatever. It's sort of like the feeling that beauty is the one great moral good, like that feeling of, of beauty that can permeate anything. And that one can sort of attach to from all these different tentacles and have that feeling of upliftment and resonance and inspiration. And so it doesn't surprise me that you attack it from all different areas. 
I mean, just off camera here, for instance, there is just for no one's edification other than my own, just it's like, you know, farmer's market produce here. Like there's always bowls of, this is like, I, this is total school of Alice Waters, right? I mean, but right. bowls of beautiful citrus and strawberries and whatever is seasonal, it's, you know, that actually seeing those things every day, even if of course I'll cook with them eventually, but it's having those textures and those colors around. It's not incidental. I mean, in our lives, we have really striven to make things so efficient in our culture. Like, you know, we've taken out anything that's deemed superfluous. And beauty is one of those things that we've just said, like, this is, you know, superficial. It's like, it doesn't matter. You know, things should be pared down. We shouldn't take time with eating, for instance, in tuck culture, just drink Soylent or whatever, like, you know, don't actually have, we don't ritualize beauty in the way that we used to, call, you know, for centuries and for millennia as humans. And the beauty for my mom is also kind of inherently relationship to the, to the earth, you know, to the environment, that those things are not separate. You know, you have a real connection to the place to, and you feel more connected to also things like climate change and, and the urgency around our responsibility to these things when you are more aware of natural beauty, when you pick, you know, a flower when you're on a walk and put it, you know, in a little vase. Those things, they're not tiny, incidental, like disregarded gestures. They actually really connect us. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that we also need to remember to give ourselves permission to kind of revel in those moments of, of beauty and that to your point, they're not superficial. And, you know, even reading about your mother's love of flowers and having flower arranger at Chez Panisse and her love of violets everywhere. And, you know, it's sort of like, gosh, no, this is, it's not, it's not superfluous or it's not superficial. It's like these moments that connect you to that feeling of divinity, right? That that's what beauty I think does. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So you went sort of through food and then kind of into art and literature. So what was it about studying art history and going into the world of fine art? Like, tell me just a little bit about that path. Well, I think definitely the, the sort of concern with aesthetics and beauty was the groundwork that I needed to be interested in or attuned to fine art and its aesthetic accomplishments and, and meaning. But my dad is an artist and he's a painter and in fact had a studio in, in our backyard when I was growing up and I would always go out there and sit in this 
oversized, huge armchair, which actually was made by a local artist named David Ireland and, and just watch him paint. And that was by definitely the most kind of, I think, obvious and concrete tether that I have to the fine art world and to museum going, my dad would take me to museums and same. Uh, yeah. So I was, you know, that was the relationship that he really, I think he really inculcated in me an interest in like the institution of, of art and how, how it could be viewed and the kind of very, the etiquette of that or the, and, and also the reverence for it. So I owe my father for sure that particular avenue. <laughs> and also my dad is really an intellectual and someone who reads loads and was always interested about what was happening in culture in a very different way than my mom. I mean, there are these kind of two poles, really. My mom is a total sensuous, you know, just physically engaged, not, she, by her own admission, she's like, I'm not an intellectual, you know, whereas my dad is, you know, highly educated Jew from <laughs> Tulsa, Oklahoma, obsessed <laughs> with sort of excavating himself from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and like getting to the Bay Area, which for him was this total awakening. And so I have both of them very, like, you know, very much in my, in my interests and how this sort of co-evolved. But I studied fine art as well as art history as an undergrad. And the first job I had after college was working at a fine art printer. So I was an etching technician in New York. So I was working on editions of prints, which was a, a, actually to this day, I'm like, was that my favorite job I've ever had? Like, should I return, <laughs> should I return to manual labor work in service of other artists? Um, <laughs> And then I ended up in England almost kind of by a fluke. It was like my college boyfriend was doing a fellowship there. So I applied for a PhD and I never thought I would end up doing it. And then it's always the boyfriends that get you to England. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Boyfriends Damn. alone could be the only thing to go to England. Like it certainly wasn't the food in 2006. And then I, you know, I, I but I loved, especially loved London. And it's an amazing city for culture and for art. So I stayed, it was, there felt like there was, it was at the time certainly felt pre-Brexit like really an amazingly international city that was so devoted to art and so many incredible institutions, you know, from Tate to the National Gallery. And so that was like a, a kind of intuitive thing. It was an interesting thing moving back to California a few years ago and sort of figuring out like how it all like comes together for me, you know, and it was, I had started Permanent Collection, but you know, it was still figuring out what it was going to be. There were a lot of the balls in the air in a way. And now, and actually now I'm, I'm down in LA. It's like LA kind of marries the best in a way of my interest in California, which is in its incredible city for art and for, and the arts ecology here is so robust, so many young artists, so many great art schools. And then, and so many great institutions. And then also like the best farmer's market. The produce, and I was just going to say. The best produce, so really good at all, you know. I think I found my place. Yeah. I, I loved being an expatriate. I loved kind of how awake I felt noticing, you know, it's like I was born in Southern California. And though I've spent most of my life not here, I have very strong sense memories, early childhood being in kind of like seventies, Venice, California, and the quality of the light and everything. And there's just kind of this unconscious comfort mm -hmm. that I feel when I'm here that I did not feel at all in the UK because everything was so foreign. And I was so awake to all of the differences in culture and language and food and and architecture. And I too moved back to Los Angeles from there, having not, you know, been in California for a very long time and 
and I agree that there's this fantastic synergy in the city at the moment. I mean, we'll see how it sort of comes back to life in a post-pandemic world, but certainly before the pandemic, it felt like there was something culturally happening that I hadn't felt since I had been in London with this confluence of the food movement and the art movement. And it does feel like a nice place to return to. I mean, I I completely agree about that. When I first went to England, I mean, I never, ever adopted even like the faintest accent. I mean, I definitely had friends where I was like, what is going on with you? Like after two months, like- Don't worry, that is the worst. So I really like, I almost, if anything, I feel like my- Americanness was almost amplified, but not not in like a gross way. Just I really started to understand kind of who I was or what I stood for in a way like, for instance, not a repressed individual, very emotive, love having people over, you know, like the first year of living in England, like I was bringing people, I was cooking all the time. We got this beautiful house and we had a wonderful kitchen, huge table. And we just, and these, my friends, especially my English friends had never experienced anything like that. Like that there was a kind of open invitation to just come by almost every night and eat. And, you know, we had this sort of informal salon in a way, which is always how I like to run, ideally how I like to run my life, which has been a very strange, like clipped wing period during the pandemic, because of course it's been very hard to do that. And it was such a point of identity for me. It was like how, you know, bringing people together and, and, and in a way using the table also to meet new people, to say like, I know I can lure someone in that I'm really interested in meeting, like an artist I want to meet or a writer or whomever it is, you know, it's like, which in a way is kind of what my mom did always at Chez Panisse, you know, Chez Panisse was this magnetic center where all the great filmmakers, whenever they were in town, they would come through or the, whoever was singing opera at Zellerbach would come and Chez Panisse became this kind of cultural hub because like what it stood for and how delicious it was to eat there was such an attractant that it was like always a reliable place to end up having these incredible conversations and and tables with people. I mean, my mom telling me about the early days of the restaurant, especially is just mind bending, you know, you have like Kurosawa and like Godard at the same table, you know, like these just incredible stories. So I think like, I've definitely inherited the impulse to use the table as a way to bring people and create community that I'm interested in, cultural community, activist community, you know, whatever it is that I think people really, where they'll find each other and hopefully like something, you know, greater than the sum of the parts comes out of it. In the way that that can only really happen at a dinner table, even if people don't know each other or, you know, you're trying to curate like a group, you sit down and even if it's a bit tense at the at the outset you know as soon as there's food and tactile and chewing and wine it's like everybody relaxes and everybody's like real self comes forward it's such a great context for I don't know intellectual advancement right (laughs) food is food is a lubricant you know (laughs) good food I'll say good food I mean bad food can have the exact opposite (laughs) so I mean but I completely agree. I do think it creates a kind of condition of openness where people feel like they can really have kind of really real conversation and connection. And and my mom always says, you know, food is one of the few things we universally have in common. Every other human being on earth, like we have to eat to survive. You know, it's just this thing that has to happen, you know, whether it happens 
in fortunate places three times a day, less fortunate places every few days, but it is something that's necessary for survival. So it is the thing that provides this connective tissue and how we can relate to one another too. I think <clears throat> I certainly had the benefit of that in my childhood of just people coming through every almost every night. You know, there was a kind of open door policy and there's always room for one more. You're far more relaxed. I need to know exactly how <laughs> coming. <laughs> you know, it helps to have like a salad patch in the backyard so you can always just supplement, you know, a little yes. bit see more leaves in there. Oh, I hate, I, I have a recurring nightmare around not having enough food to serve. It's like a I guess so. I'm like, well, did you notice how many oranges I had in this bowl? It's definitely too many oranges for one person. So I clearly, I share that concern. <laughs> how do you cook? Do you go to the farmer's market and start there? Or do you have an idea of what you might want to do? I feel like saying that I go to the farmer's market and draw inspiration from that has almost become a kind of cliche, but it's true. You know, I, I never... I never want to cook with food that is not like really available and in season. Like it just tastes worse. I mean, I just was in New York for six weeks because my um, partner is editing a film there. And, you know, it's pretty hard in Manhattan actually to get really good food. Like and the green markets are obviously very slim in the winter months. And so I made like, I was like, all right, I'm just going to get this butternut squash at Whole Foods and I won't tell my mom and I'll make a risotto. And it tasted <laughs> really like kind of wan and not and flavorless. And it's like- Even the, with your stock? Even with, you know, even with a good stock, you know, it's like there is so much in what she always like just harps on about my mom about, you know, when you are eating something that is in the peak of the season and grown in good soil, especially, you are eating the highest expression of flavor in that thing. And it's really obvious. It's almost like to the point where it, between good, some good vegetables and a really good bottle of olive oil, like your friends <laughs> eat whatever you make and think, what have you done? Like, how are you such a good cook? And it's like, I didn't almost nothing, which is the, you know, culinary ethos of Chez Panisse. It's like very low intervention cooking. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, your mom pioneered that in a lot of ways in this country, right? And it's like, you know, gotten a fair amount of shit for it over the years, like being told that she's, you know, sort of been hindered progress in terms of culinary innovation because it's so simple that and it propounds this very simple philosophy around cooking and she's like she's never let it you know ruffle her or fluster her and she's just stayed the course I, I mean it's my favorite way of eating and obviously a lot of other people have been influenced by that method too it's also in my opinion the healthiest way of eating like when you get right down to the ingredient you know the sure. body knows what to do with it. Minimally processed. For sure. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. 
To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I have this fantasy of building, even though I've never seen it, of building this storied pizza oven open fire thing that you grew up in. Can you explain that in more detail? Like, what did it look like? Was it in the middle of the kitchen? Is this something that can be replicated? Can you photograph this? <laughs> there probably is a photograph in the book of it, but it is basically my parents. It's the one like major intervention that they did when they bought the house in the eighties and renovated it was they joined together the, the dining room and the kitchen into one big room and then took what was a fireplace already and created this massive brick hearth. It's this large brick hearth that has a hip height fireplace, which is key, right? Like if you're actually going to cook, down all the time. I mean, I have a beautiful fireplace in my apartment, which I actually grill in, but it's on the ground. And so you're like, sort of, you know, crouching down there, which is not a comfortable way to, obviously it's not a cooking fireplace, but, um, the one that my mom built has the heart kind of right around hip height. And then she always has this Tuscan, what she calls a Tuscan grill, a grill that she found like in the eighties in Tuscany and, and started to import. And then was like, this is not a business model I can deal with. So like, I think a, a similar grill is like still being imported. And it's a great, a very simple grill with three heights, sort of cantilevered grill, but there's always a fire in that room. You know, I mean, barring the few days when it's been actually there's been so much smoke in the atmosphere from wildfires it's been the way to heat the house because there's not central heating and so it's always like just throw a little thing on the grill like the fire's already going and it creates this kind of relationship between atmosphere and also food and the senses I mean having that smell of the fire in the room and the warmth of it is you know better than incense better than candles you know it has that instant feeling of making that, that, that room feel really convivial and, and, and cozy. And then it has a, a pizza oven right next to it. Also at hip height or a little bit higher. Cause you're, when you're negotiating pizzas in, it needs to be a little bit higher. And it's, I mean, it is this kind of massive complex. I think you could do something on a more modest scale for a kitchen. I think maybe the pizza oven part could be outside, you know, but the having a the hearth in the kitchen is a magical thing. Mm. And my cousin was so influenced by my mom's that he built one in his house in the same kind of, you know, orientation in his house in Chicago. It's like, it's the best thing to have it, a, a, kitchen, a cooking hearth right in the kitchen. How does one clean, like I imagine sort of, you know, fat dripping down. How does that? It's not as messy as you think, it's especially not? if you're routinely burning fires. I mean, you're a lot of that it is kind of off. But we, you know, it gets cleaned out, the ashes and stuff once a week. And then I think probably a year, every year or so, someone, we have someone come and like clean the chimney. And it has to be someone you know is like cleaning a chimney that's used for cooking, because of course there is more, you know. It's like, must be like a clogged artery. It's, you know. <laughs> We're not like grilling burgers on there every night. Oh, okay. <laughs> Listen, you know, it's the occasional little, little lamb chop or whatever. And we use it actually though, every Thanksgiving, we do rotisserie turkey in there. So. Oh my gosh. That would just be a beautiful thing to do right next to the table. You know, it's just kind of like, oh, it's, it's turkey. Incredible. Do you have like the thing installed there to actually... Yeah. Yeah, that's the other, I would say, recommended feature is having a rotisserie, a motorized rotisserie also, like have it equipped with that so you can 
thread it through the side and do a rotisserie, which my <laughs> lovely, sweet, sweet boyfriend, the first year that he came to Thanksgiving, my mom thought the rotisserie motor was broken. It turned out we hadn't like turned it like the right switch. And so he basically like hand moved the turkey, like in mitts every like 20 minutes. He, yeah. And I was like, this is devotion. This is love. Yeah. If he didn't get her approval after that. Oh yeah, no, he was golden from that point forward. I want to briefly ask you about your lunches growing up, your lunch boxes as a child. And you said there was a certain point in your life where your, you know, packed lunches went from being kind of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to these far more elaborate, like super gourmand lunches <laughs> and these crazy icebox packet things to take to school. And you noted that it was around the time of your parents' divorce. I mean, you make that connection in the book. So I, I, I'm just kind of wondering, like, what, what was underneath that? What was your mother trying to, to do? I mean, I, so it's interesting that you they're connecting it to the lunch because, and to that moment, because I remember writing that, that little statement about, or sort of reflecting on how it did seem to coincide with this moment of real turmoil for my mom. And my dad moved to Italy for an extended period of time. And so I was really with my mom, you know, full-time and, and it was a, it was a vulnerable, volatile time for me. Cause I was 13, 14, you know, it's just a really hard time to be very confused, sort of be feeling like a proto-adult, but also really still a kid and very confused about kind of what was going on and not totally aware of everything that was going on. But I, I, I've been asked, like, what is the real, like, lesson or takeaway from your book? And I've said two years, you know, beyond the original publication and having a lot of time to think about kind of what this book has meant both to me and to other people. It's like that that you communicate through food, that food is not just, you know, fuel, but it is how you express emotions and love and connection and security. And for me, my mom devoting so much time to these lunches was not just a way for her to not think about what was going on in her marriage or, or even other, anything else really, other than to tell me very, very, I guess, in a way directly without it being lingual, you know, with it just being through this act of some, making something delicious and with tremendous amount of care that she was there, she wasn't going anywhere, that this was, that she loved me, that that secure, secure attachment was, was not corrupted by whatever else was going on, you know, with her and my dad. And it's why I, it's why I really come, keep coming back to this and saying like, it is, this is a critical way that we talk to one another is through food. This is not, and it is not, again, like beauty, it's not incidental. Like these, these are how we express to each other, not just, you know, that we love each other, but also what our value system is because how we're procuring that food is also part of how we're communicating, you know, what we care about, what we're invested in, what things matter to us. And so I think like, you know, these lunches were insane, you know, like so many Tupperwares and there was often like a little bouquet of flowers in there that smelled beautiful. So you know, it was a very sensory experience. There was always silverware, which no parent in their right mind would send their teenager to school with, but which I, for the most part, did not lose. And an actual cloth napkin, <laughs> you know, separate vinaigrette things, and usually like a little note expressing something about whatever choice she's, she'd made with sauce or spices or condiments. And 
And I mean, you know, it's like, I, I joke that it's like, I should have been a pariah in high school, but I had that lunch until basically going to college. I mean, it was like not something I had when I was a little kid. I like, I had a packed lunch, like all the way through high school. And <laughs> I was, I was actually quite popular as a result. You know, it was like my friends would clamor around for bites of this or that. So, wow. but I think, you know, I really do think it was about telling me something without being able to have the conversation with a teenager because teenagers are pretty impervious to reason or that kind of really engaged and difficult conversation. It was like, it was a way of just telling me every day what I needed to know. Yeah. Oh, it's so sweet and irrefutable. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless high quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable and they always offer fast and free shipping from the US. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It's interesting reading the book through the lens of being a mother. You know, I'm a mother, I'm also a daughter, right? So it, it was really interesting for me to think about those moments where your mother so indelibly touched you. And, you know, in the case of the lunchbox, I was like, shit, well, I used to like write a note in there and like stick a freaking yogurt. Oh, well, (laughs) they're going to talk about that one in therapy. (laughs) You know, not every parent expresses it in the same way, but you know, this is my mom's language. Yeah. But I, you know, I think like if it can, if it can encourage a parent to feel like, actually, I know this takes a lot of time, but it's, it's like worth it. It's working, you know, like the kid is absorbing that, that yeah. it's not something like that, it, that it might be worth the investment of extra time that then that's also a reason to sort of, you know, encourage people in that direction. Although of course, you know, some of these things that my mom did were not efficient or, you know would not fit into the, some of the people's crazy schedules today. Also, you don't talk about, and maybe there aren't very many, but you don't talk about complications really in your relationship with your mother in the book. Maybe, <laughs> maybe there aren't, or maybe it's, you know, but, but yet it's still so human. It was funny. My editor at one point was like, you do need to mention that your parents were divorced. <laughs> like I had just completely elided some of the, you know, more kind of nettlesome and difficult like bits of, the, of my life. And because this is not like a straight narrative from start to finish, it's all these little stories. It was a way for me to really focus actually mainly on food and, and the way that that was at the core of so much of the experiences that I had as a kid. But it did also let me avoid, you know, having certain, treating certain topics, which 
honestly just didn't feel urgent to me. It wasn't about having to, you know. It's not what the book's about. No, exactly. Exactly. It's really about my relationship to my mom through this very specific lens of food. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, I was not like a totally rebellious teenager, but of course, like I was a teen growing up in. I don't know. There's no stories about like, you know, cigarette smoking or throwing parties. There was no cigarette smoking. Okay. I hate to disappoint, but there was eating of like a few surreptitious like junk foods along the way. The other day, we were, my mom and I were in Hawaii for a week and with a friend, and I was like telling our friend, I was like, when I was in middle school, Occasionally, I would spend the like one dollar I had for a snack each day at this cafe getting this disgusting prepackaged donut. Mm-hmm. And I would like put it, hide it in my backpack and then go home, lock myself in the bathroom and eat it by myself. It was just because truly I never ate anything like that generally in life. And I knew my mom would not be particularly tolerant. And in and then a moment later, I went into a store to get a bathing suit and my mom very sweetly picked up <laughs> this little donut at the at this corner at little bakery and brought it to me. And she was like, this is to make amends for any, and it was this like, you know, local Portuguese style donut. It was not the crappy donut of, of my like transgressive youth, but you know, Which I'm sure defeated the whole point. I mean, I'm sure part of the rebellion. <laughs> no, I, I quite enjoy any donut, <laughs> any variety still. It's one of those foods. Do you want to tell everybody quickly what Coming yes. Home Pasta is? Thank you for that prompt. Um, coming Home Pasta was what we would call this very, very simple dish um, of pasta that we would have when we came back to our house after long stretches away. And it's like, it's kind of like a white puttanesca. It's very simple. It's like whatever garlic you still have around that's firm enough and like aromatic in a good way, doesn't smell stale. Some anchovies, maybe some capers, chili flakes, really good olive oil. If you have a little bit of Parmesan that's like not sort of aged beyond repair and then always <laughs> like herbs from the garden because we always have, you know, a bunch of really bushy overgrown parsley in the garden. And you just chop all that stuff up and saute it and use whatever pasta you have lying around. And it is, it's probably the most, you know, quote unquote viral recipe from the book because it was in an actually time of relative ingredient scarcity at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people were making this pasta because it's so, God, it's, there's that, that word in British English, Moorish, which is so kind of gross word, but also like really evocative. <laughs> it's like, it really like so satisfyingly flavorful. So we would make this, you know, after long trips away. We made it a lot when we were just stuck at home all the time. We, we, we joked that it was called always home pasta because we were just, there was no coming or going. We were just constantly home. <laughs> uh, but we, but my mom and I just went to Hawaii for a week and we, I was in Berkeley for a night before coming back down to LA and we made coming home pasta and it's, it's, oh, it's like one of those forever, forever vault recipes, you know? So good. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Fanny Singer. I hope you'll pick up a copy of her most excellent book, Always Home. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.